Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, you look good on this Mother's Day. Open your Bibles with me, beloved. Grasp the living word in your hands and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks, of course, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. We want to send out our love and our thanks to all of our mothers on this Mother's Day. We have the joy of not only heaping love upon such a special person, of knowing how much we love them and that they mean, but for the Christian, Mother's Day is more special still. You know, regardless of age, even if she has, been, if she has passed on, Mother's Day is a time for believers to reflect upon the goodness and the faithfulness of God in our lives through this very special person. Now, I pray we have all been blessed with godly mothers You know, the great theologian John Wesley, one of my favorite quotes for Mother's Day, said, quote, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than I did from all the theologians in England. What an impact they have on our lives. I know we have some young stay-at-home moms, new moms, even in our church family this year, who might have faced down 20 loads of laundry this week, and you just did the dishes, and the sink is full again. It can feel like a treadmill that never ends and some days wondering what the point is of some of these things you have to do. And I was considering Jeremiah as he also was having a particularly hard day as he was writing the book of Lamentations. And in the midst of those challenges, Jeremiah spoke truth to himself. He didn't tell himself what he felt. He didn't take counsel of his fears or of his discouragements, though they were many. He proclaimed what he knew to be true. Jeremiah cried out, This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in him. Regardless of the season of life, they all carry challenges, but his loving kindnesses never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. While many of us aren't moms in here, we all have a mom. A mother that is given to us by God. Knowing that God has sovereignly placed us in the family he has for a reason. Even in hardship, God has used our mothers to shape us and to spur us on toward godliness. So we thank God for our mothers. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we completed our series within last things titled, A Servant is Not Greater. Looking, of course, through the lens of persecution that has happened and that will happen to the followers of Christ. We were encouraged and lifted up as we all have or as we will face broken relationships and hardships because of faith and standing on the truth of Scripture, however unpopular that might be with culture. And working our way through Jesus' response in the Olivet Discourse, we have watched as Jesus lists off the very events to happen in perfect sequence with Revelation 6, watching first the four horsemen, the four seals, last week coming upon the fifth seal as Jesus spoke in verses 9 through 13 of the persecution of his people, paralleling perfectly with, of course, the fifth seal in Revelation 6-9, seeing under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness 
that they had borne. And this drew us really to examine our doctrine of persecution. What does Scripture say about it? Should we expect it? Should we fear it? What is the history of persecution? And what has been the fruit of it? And thus, what is the normative life we should live and expect as Christians? We remind, we're being reminded of that great gift of persecution that has been to the church over the ages. We are reminded how it causes her to be purified and to shake off the lethargy that comes with prosperity, seeing the gospel as a fire that grows stronger against the winds of persecution. Of course, we looked at the manifestations of that in the time of the tribulation as well, the unusual and powerful ways that the gospel will go forth as spoken of in, by Jesus in Mark 13, 10. We saw the 144,000 Jewish evangelists spoken of in Revelation 7 that will be saved mightily, that will preach mightily during this time. And the two witnesses from Revelation 11, the angel preaching in the mid-heavens in Revelation 14, and of course, the evangelistic efforts at the expense of their lives, of those saved during this horrific time. So we draw great encouragement from that today. Beloved, if the unprecedented persecution of Christians that's given sway and given speed by the most demonic of forces with no church present to hold it back, if that cannot stop the gospel, do not think for a moment that we are in some ultimate battle for this world. This is God's world. He was and is in complete control. When Scripture says that Satan is the God of this world, it speaks of Satan's sway and his influence over those who do not believe. Paul proclaimed this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. All Satan has done and will do he is allowed to do, and God is working it for our good and for his glory. Being gloriously reminded as we see these horrific things come to pass, that God allows that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. Please tuck that away in your hearts. It will be of great comfort in the world in which we live. And it will be of great comfort as well to perhaps a tribulation saint listening to this sometime in the future. So be courageous. Be bold. God plus one is a majority. Being reminded, of course, by Justin Martyr when he said, all they can do is kill you. They cannot do you any real harm. Stand with your forefathers in the faith, proclaiming that there is a God higher than Caesar. Even when the betrayal comes from your own family, as we saw last week. That is to be expected, saints. That is the norm. Expect to be hated by all for the sake of his name. Dear ones, they hate your Lord so much, his name is literally a cuss word in their mouth. Expect it. A servant is not greater than his master. Forewarned is forearmed that we might be joyful warriors. We have so much more I'd like to review this morning, but we have much ground to cover. I want to encourage you, 
If these are new topics for you, or it's felt like a lot to process and to take in, all these messages are available on Sermon Audio and Facebook. So avail yourself of those resources. Go back and listen again, and perhaps even again, if need be. Have your notebook and your Bible out in front of you. Purpose to gain understanding. This is a difficult sermon with a lot to hang on to, but we're reminded from R.C. Sproul, his wonderful quote that he gave us, that there are many truths that can reside in the mind and not reside in their heart. But there are no truths that reside in your heart that did not first reside in your mind. So press in to gain knowledge and understanding. Be expository listeners. Well, today as we continue our journey through the Olivet Discourse and our study of eschatos, of eschatology, our study of last things, I have to say that a number of us mused earlier if this, well, if it might be the first time in Christendom, the text to be read and studied on Mother's Day is the abomination of desolation in the Great Tribulation. (laughs) Wow. Alas, the Lord sets our timetables. And our commitment, as always, as a body committed to the exposition of of Scripture, the joyful task ever before us is to preach the next verse. And so we will with great enthusiasm. But how many mothers might be encouraged and strengthened for the travails and challenges of their daily lives as they watch what saints will endure during this period, a period that Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's trouble. We have much to cover, so let us open with our text this morning, beloved. Mark 13, 14a. Mark 13, 14a. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you on this Mother's Day. Lord, we thank you for your word that is timeless. Lord, that you have sovereignly decreed where we shall land. We pray that our hearts might be informed, lifted up, encouraged. Lord, that we might see rightly. Lord, that we might look forward with bright and clear eyes. Lord, as we look forward to all that you will do. Lord, that it would inflame our passion to reach the lost as we see those around us and the labor that they are under. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, up to this point, we've primarily been dealing, if you'll remember, with the first half of the seven years of tribulation. So that would be three and a half years. And while we've mentioned this a few times, we've not yet had good opportunity to explain where this timing comes from and why it matters. Now, it becomes eminently appropriate at this point because it is the event before us today, the abomination of desolation, that will split this time, meaning three and a half years and three and a half years. Some may refer to the first half as the tribulation and the second half as the great tribulation, and you can probably guess why. But let us quickly examine where we are getting this time frame from. Why the seven years to begin with? And how do we know this? Well, we get this from the prophet Daniel, primarily the ninth chapter, focusing in on verses 24 to 27. And this is known as the 70 weeks. Now, beloved, this is probably the most detailed messianic prophecy anywhere in Scripture. It's going to blow you away. 
It's an incredible study all on its own. And I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole that is Daniel. We could swim in that for months. But a surface review is necessary to set our timeline. So we're going to boil this down to the simplest of terms. If we look to Daniel 9, beginning at verse 24, it says that 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. Now, I'll pause there. Now, first of all, who are we talking about? Who are your people spoken of here in Daniel? Well, it's the Jews, right? It's the Jews. The Jews are Daniel's people. So we have 70 weeks declared against your people, the nation of Israel. All right. And we have and so here we have a period of time that God has given to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Is that all? So Daniel records that God declares that 77s will fulfill all of those things. It's written 77s of years. Now, who quick on their feet can tell me how long that is? 77s is 490 years. Keep that number in your mind. That's how long to wrap this whole business up. 490 years. Remember that number. If we look back to Daniel, let's see how that time will be used. How will God use this to finish his discipline of his people, Israel, and to finalize his judgment of an unbelieving world, bringing in everlasting righteousness? We have 490 years to do it. How will God use it? Watch this. If you've never seen this, be prepared for your faith and joy in Scripture to be built. Back to Daniel chapter 9, looking to verse 25, it reads, So you are to know... And decree that from the issuing of a, know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Now, what numbers do we have there? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. How much are those together? 69 weeks. How long is that? 69 weeks. It's 483 years. So 483 years after the decree is given to rebuild Jerusalem, what does it say will happen? Messiah will be cut off. Beloved, listen and grab hold of this. Guess how long... Every biblical historian agrees. Guess how long between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the crucifixion of Messiah? 483 years. If that doesn't build your faith in Scripture and get you excited about the Word of God, I don't know what will. So what number did we say to hang our hat on to? 77s of years, 490. 490 was the number to hang on to. How many have we used? How long between the command to rebuild Jerusalem and the crucifixion of Messiah? 483. How many are left to bring all to right? How many years are left to accomplish all that shall be accomplished? Seven years. Seven years for God to finish judging Israel for her sins, to bring about revival in that nation, and to turn them to their Messiah. At least a third of them anyway. That's another teaching for another day. 
But this is where our time frame comes from. All right? Now, how about the splitting of that seven years of tribulation? Three and a half and three and a half. What event splits that time? Looking back to Daniel's ninth chapter, part of 26, and on to verse 27, we read this. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now here the he spoken of is the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation 13. And we see that he will broker a peace deal with Israel and the nations. Remember Revelation 6-2 shows the Antichrist coming with what? Just a bow, but no arrows. No arrows. Meaning he comes offering peace, not war initially. And he will make a covenant with many for one week. Now because we explain the 77s, you understand how long a week represents in Daniel, don't you? It's seven years. But again, what happens in the middle of that? Verse 27 again. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week... He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate. So halfway through, meaning three and a half years into the peace accord, it's going to fail. Why? It says he's going to put a stop to the sacrifices and grain offerings. Now, where would this be done? In Jerusalem, in the temple. More on that to come. That opens a good place here to, op- to introduce the first half of our first verse, our only verse. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. Now pause there. What exactly is that? Jesus tells us exactly where to look in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse. What does Jesus say? So when you see... The abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. So thanks to Jesus, we know where to look, and we know where this is. Something or someone is going to set itself up in the temple of God in Jerusalem and cause such a visceral response, it will cause desolation. Now, how is this going to happen? What does it look like? When will it happen? Thanks to Daniel, we have all those answers. But first, we need to grab our telescope, don't we? Always we have our telescope. We ha- do we have a near fulfillment of this or something of a near fulfillment of this? Yes, we do. 167 years before Christ was born, 167 B.C., a Greek ruler by the name of Antiochus, he desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. He set up an altar that was dedicated to Zeus, and he built, he built that on top of the altar of burnt offerings. And then he proceeded to sacrifice a pig on that altar. In Antiochus, he continued his abominations. He was slaughtering Jews, and he was selling others into slavery. He forbade circumcision. 
He required Jews to sacrifice to pagan gods and to eat pig meat. He was a bad guy. But this was merely the template. This was the near fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And we cannot consider this prophecy in Daniel fulfilled in Antiochus because Jesus said what? When you see the abomination of desolation. So we know the template of what to expect, but it is yet future. And it must be near and far fulfillment. These are principles that we understand now. So what will happen in this case? Daniel tells us. Midway through the time of supposed brokered peace with Israel, the Antichrist is going to break the truce. Now quickly, how do we know this? This exact time. Daniel 12, 11 tells us. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Anyone want to take a stab at how long 1,290 days is? That's three and a half years. How about that? So what is Antichrist? This person who had previously come in peace to, to broker peace. What is he going to do? He's going to gather his armies. And he's going to march into the temple in Jerusalem. And he's going to stop all the sacrifices. Again, how do we know that? Daniel eleven thirty one: Forces shall be mustered by him. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, is the abomination a person or a thing? The answer is likely yes. (laughs) It's both, right? We're not entirely sure. But Paul gives us some inkling of what will happen in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. Paul writes, But let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that, listen to the saints, he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Now, before we go on, some important distinctions need to be made. Understand how we are to read these passages. We need to briefly address a view out there known as preterism. Now, the preteristic view of reading the Bible is that everything we read is historical. Nothing is future. All has already happened and been fulfilled. It believes that the book of Revelation is merely a symbolic picture of first century conflicts. It's not a depiction of what will occur in the end times. It would teach that everything Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse was all accomplished and fulfilled in and by 70 AD with the destruction of the Jerusalem with the temple of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They would tell you Tell us that Jesus' return was not physical and bodily, but that it was actually spiritual. That the promised resurrection of believers has already occurred. Now there's much, much more to that, but we want us to have a base level knowledge here. When we're reading matters of eschatology, one is either a preterist, meaning past, or he is a futurist, or some sort of amalgamation in between. 
Now, beloved, the problems with preterism, with viewing all eschatology as history, are many. They are many. And I'm not going to labor on this because of time. But if we look to verse 19 of our Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, It will be a time of tribulation like has never been since the beginning of creation and ever will be. It will be so bad, verse 20, Jesus said, if God did not cut it short, no human being would be saved. Newsflash, that's not talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. All of the incredible battles of horses up to their bridles in blood in Zechariah, none of that was even close to accomplished in Jerusalem's burning in 70 AD. But beloved, all of this is a moot argument because of what Jesus says next. Showing us definitively that this tribulation is not just future, but is somewhat distant future. Back to our text, verse 14. What does Jesus say next? But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Did you catch that, saints? Oh, it's so easy to gloss over. Let who understand? The reader, the reader, not the hearer. Jesus is not telling the disciples that this is for their consumption. It's not let the hearer hear, it's let the reader read. In order for the reader to read, what needs to be done? Something needs to be written, beloved. Bible in your hand. Now let's give some space for the preterists. Let's give them some space and say, well, let's just go with Revelation was at least written. We don't need the whole Bible collected and formalized. Okay, but we do need Revelation. Can we all agree on that? At a minimum, to make a claim, let the reader read at least Revelation. Well, when was Revelation written? Now there's two arguments for dating Revelation. One is a convincing view. The other is not. The most likely dating for Revelation by John was between A.D. 94 and 96. And that was right at the end of the emperor Domitian's reign. And he was a bad guy. That would put the writing of Revelation well past 70 A.D., well past the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now that poses a huge problem for preterists, of course. Some try and date John's writing to the time of Nero's reign between 58 and 68, to make it work. Now that makes the theory of A.D. 70 fit. There's huge problems with this. Not least of all would be the refutation of almost all the early church fathers. Irenaeus affirmed Revelation being wrote toward the end of Domitian's reign. The later date, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Victorinus, Eusebius, Jerome, all affirm the later 94 to 96 date. And Victorinus, by the way, he wrote the earliest commentary on Revelation. If the reader is to understand, if the reader is to understand, one should argue the totality of Scripture is to be read and understood. But even if we only argue to just have Revelation in hand for the reader to understand, that's still 24 to 26 years after the fall of Jerusalem. So let the reader understand will be our tribulation saints. It will be our Jews being brought to Messiah. It will be those who are witnessing these things we are talking about and understanding the times. 
When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of in the prophet Daniel coming to pass, when you see the new temple being built in Jerusalem, and remember, you will need a temple if there's a temple to be desecrated. Meaning what? The, Jerus- the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Now let's pause on that for a moment. Because this is a large piece of the future puzzle. Where does the abomination of desolation take place? Mark says where it ought not be. Daniel 9.27, as we read, said it will be in the temple, in the holy place. Where does Paul place this event happening in 2 Thessalonians. He said he will take his seat in the temple of God. Now we'll discuss discuss even more in just a few minutes why again. This could not have been fulfilled by Antiochus. But let us focus on the temple here. How many temples have we had? Well, two essentially. First one, of course, built by Solomon. And the second one built by the Jews, right? Remember when they returned from Israel back returned to Israel from captivity in Babylon. And it was on that platform in that space of the temple where it sat that was built up and it was expanded by King Herod, as was the temple itself. But since the sacrifices were never stopped during that renovation and that expansion, the new temple was still considered to be the second temple. Does that make sense? As we've already talked about, this temple was famously raised to the ground and not one stone was left upon another in 70 AD, precisely where we began our Olivet Discourse. So is there a temple in Jerusalem today? No. Will there be? Yes. There has to be. There has to be a temple for the Antichrist to walk in and desecrate. Thus we know a third temple will be rebuilt. It is a sure sign of the coming times. Let the reader understand Now, even today, there are numerous Jewish organizations, primarily the Temple Institute, that are committed to rebuilding this third temple. Did you know that all the ceremonial pieces have already been made? They're sitting in boxes ready for use. The Temple Institute already houses the three most important items for the new temple, which have been produced precisely in accordance with biblical specifications. They have the golden altar of incense. They have the showbread table and the temple menorah. It's made out of pure 24-karat gold. It will be rebuilt. It will be. Now, you might ask, how will that happen? Most of you who know or have been to Israel know that the Al-Aqsa Mosque sits right atop the Temple Mount. Well, they can't both be there at the same time. It sounds like you're going to need, well, a really good political leader. You're going to need a really good negotiator to make something like that happen, won't you? There's no more contested piece of property on the entire planet than the Temple Mount. And it would take quite a, quite a great and charismatic leader to broker such a deal. But it will be done. The temple will be rebuilt. Let the reader understand. So when you see the Antichrist, the world leader who has brokered this peace with Israel, break that peace... Walk into the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, suspend all the sacrifices, and declare himself to be God and command that you will worship me as God. You know you are about to kick off the final three and a half year stretch to the end. And that is the very worst of the worst. And the Christian of that time will say, What? There is a God higher than Caesar. 
They will not worship the beast or his image. But the question arises, what exactly will happen? What will happen that will cause the world to go from mere adulation of this charismatic leader and politician, going from merely following him into this time of false peace, to go from that all the way to all-out worship? How do we get there? In a place we'll go in a moment, Revelation 13, it says that all who dwell on the earth will worship him. So under what guise, what receipts is he bringing to command this worship, to commit the abomination of desolation? Well, turn with me in your Bibles this morning, beloved, to Revelation 13, that we might get a fuller sense of that. Let's hear some pages rustling. Turn in your Bibles, beloved, to Revelation 13. And we might get a fuller sense of this. Now, along with some other incredible tidbits, Revelation 13, we don't have time to do any sort of deep dive here. It would take us a year to get out of this chapter. But watch what happens. What makes the peoples of the world go from fascination and adulation as king to worshiping the Antichrist as God? Beginning with verse 2, watch this. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now pause there. What's the one way to catapult yourself to godhood status, especially if you are literally the Antichrist, meaning you flaunt a perversion and a knockoff, a decoy of everything that Christ actually did. What will the Antichrist do to bring the whole world to worship him? It tells us his fatal wound will be healed, meaning someone somewhere is probably going to try and take this guy out. And whether it's a ruse, a complete ruse, it's fake, Or God actually allows Satan to use his powers this way? Either way, the world is going to think that he rose from the dead. Now, moving through Revelation 13, they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Beloved, how long is 42 months? Again, three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, continuing on in Revelation 13, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to go overcome them, meaning he's going to hunt Christians and he's going to appear to win. But do notice, beloved, that what? It was given to him. It was given to him to make war on the saints. You don't get to mess with those purchased by God unless it's allowed. That goes for today in our lives as well. Back to Revelation 13, an authority was given over every tribe and people and nation was given to him. Watch verse 8. Watch verse 8, beloved. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. 
Your name was there since the foundation of the earth. Verses 11 through 18, moving on, they speak of the Antichrist's right-hand man, the false prophet. What does he do? Beginning at verse 12, he exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him, hear that again, given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free man and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name." Now, a deep dive, beloved, into the false prophet and who he is, what he can and will do is, is beyond the scope of, of the Olivet Discourse. But know that for everything that is good and pure from God, and we'll talk much more about this next week, everything that is, that is good and pure from God, Satan has a counterfeit. Okay? He has a counterfeit. He will promote the worship of the Antichrist. He will perform signs and miracles that mimic that of Jesus's. And he will be very convincing. And the world will follow this false prophet and his false gospel. But beloved, we will all accept a gospel. True or a false gospel, we will all accept one. Scripture tells us that if we reject the gospel of Scripture, we will accept a false gospel. Paul tells us this clearly in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10, even speaking of those last days. That is, the one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. We will accept the gospel. The cavity will be, will be filled. If you reject the gospel of truth, the gospel on offer is the gospel going in, especially when it is as convincing and deceptive as these times. In the words of the great theologian Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. He will take his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God, and he will boast great things there. Now, yet another reason that Paul gives us in Thessalonians, showing us that Antiochus' desecration of the temple, remember, back in 167, was not the fulfillment of this prophecy, the abomination of desolation. What did Antiochus do? He built an idol of Zeus in the temple and said what? Worship him. But the Antichrist is going to say what? Worship me. And they will worship the beast. And if you don't, you will not be able to buy or sell. You will be hunted as a traitor and as a hater of mankind. 
If you pay even the slightest attention, dear ones, to the spirit of our age today, as you look and see how they desire to treat true Christians, you can see that restrained spirit of Antichrist already at work. Very clearly, John tells us the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world. So this scene will inaugurate the second part of the seven years, the abomination of desolation. And it will be a time of great trial and trouble, truly unseen ever in history. To use Jesus' own words later in his discourse, it will be universal, universal devastation, unrestrained evil, demonic activity will be given free reign. Beloved, I know this has been a lot to take in. And it's probably hard to believe that so much can be contained in only half a verse. And there's so much more to come. Yet over it all, we continually behold the sovereignty of God in all that He has done and over all that He will do. He has created the cosmos according to His good pleasure and He will recreate it according to that same goodness and same pleasure. But the hope today, beloved, as we prepare to go home or to go out and love on or think about, appreciate our mothers this afternoon, beloved, our God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not hold such a future in His hand as we've read about and yet forget about you. Not a sparrow falls to the ground that he does not know about. That is the God we serve. Even amidst learning of the calamity of sin that must come, we can always turn to the end of the book. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's who he is. And what does he promise? That I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That giving of the water of life, beloved, is offered freely today. To all that would come in repentance and faith in Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, He is mighty to save. He is mighty to save, even to the last and even the least likely. The doors of grace are open to all that would come this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have seen good and right to put your sovereignty on display for us this morning over all that you will do. Lord, even in the hardest of times, even, Lord, when the very fabric of the earth is being torn apart, it is you. And you are good and you are faithful and you are the Alpha and the Omega and you are the beginning and the end. And Lord, we thank you that on this side of that event, we have great opportunity and that the doors of grace are truly open to all that would come. Lord, as we depart for this blessed and wonderful Mother's Day, 
we ask, Lord, that this word, these layers of, of knowledge would migrate from our minds and would settle in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of this. We ask that you would keep us until we can meet together again under your banner and your name. In Jesus' name, amen.